0: Uh, let's take just a, a, a few seconds, just to just to clear our heads and, and dive into the text this morning to learn uh, what God might want to teach us. I always find it good to. Uh, Come in. We all come from crazy different things happening during the week. Uh, Some of you guys come in with uh, just joy. You've had a a great week. You're tan. You were at the beach. It was awesome. Other you guys just hated work. You're miserable. There's anxiety. Uh, We all come in very differently uh, in our hearts and minds. So let's just take a second here and just enjoy Him, enjoy the Creator of all things, enjoy the cross. And all that he did to purchase us to himself right now in this moment. Because uh, the redeeming work of Jesus is for every moment of our day. Not just on Sunday. Not just uh, Monday through Friday. So let's do that. Just consider him. Think of him. Enjoy that the sovereign one of all things takes notice of you. That he feels the things you feel. Thinking that he's a God who's not abstract, distant, but that he's intimately involved. We saw that last week with the man with leprosy. That he actually takes sin and puts it on him. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't run from it. He deals with it. He deals with the curse of the fall. Father, it's good to be, be still uh, in a chaotic world, in a culture that is going a million miles an hour and vying for our attentions and affections everywhere we turn. God, shift our eyes this morning solely to Jesus. Let's see his beauty, his majesty, his person, his work. God, thank you for, in your providence, giving us your written revelation that it is your word so that we can see Jesus Behold, Jesus, may we be transformed by what we see, by what we read. God, may you illuminate eyes and hearts, open deaf ears this morning. May you make some new for the first time in Christ, and may you continue your gracious work of molding and shaping refining those of us who are in Christ more than the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 5. We are going through the gospel of Luke uh, together. Uh, If you're just hopping into this study that we've been going through, let me just uh, give you uh, as brief an overview and kind of catch you up to speed as I can. Luke is this guy who's writing. Luke is a physician. Luke is someone who was a beloved friend of the Apostle Paul. Luke is writing this letter to this guy Theophilus. Theophilus is this Roman official. He's skeptical of the things of Christianity. He's not quite sure if, if Jesus really is who he said he was. And so Luke is basically rolling out this huge Really, two volume work. You've got uh, Luke and Acts. It's 52 chapters, but we're just looking at Luke right now, and he's kind of laying before you why you can trust and believe in the life and teachings of Jesus and, and not just believe in them. Well, we've been saying this all the time. We don't want just to leave and have all this theological knowledge, just no know more facts than we did beforehand. We actually want to be changed by it. So he believes if he can lay out for Theophilus and really all of us who Jesus is, what he's done, why he's trustworthy, why he is God, why he is the Son of God why he was the God who was fully man and fully God, divinity, humanity, all wrapped up in one to pay for sin and atone for what we desperately needed done. If he can show us that, then there's hope for us, and we can trust him with his message and all that he says after and all that he'll do when he returns. And so... We saw that for years and years and years in Old Testament history, the people of Israel, the people of God, were just going through ups and downs, ups and downs, exiles brought back in, exile brought back in. Then there was a long span of time where we just had silence from God, about 400 years. He didn't say anything. And then he he shows up through an angelic testimony that, hey, this deliverer, the one you've been waiting for for so long to redeem and renew what went wrong back in Genesis 3 and the sacrificial system and all this blood and all these animals and all these priests, it's all going to be made right in Jesus. He's going to be fu- the fulfiller of all those things, and we see this, this birth come through Mary. We see the testimony that, that he is deity through him being in the wilderness and him just totally defeating temptation from Satan. We see him last week start to teach and heal and preach, his ministry starting in Galilee. That's going to go through chapter 9. There's, all of this stuff is unfolding and rolling out. We saw last week particularly that he starts to reveal a lot of his godness. Okay, We see that he actually touches the leper and heals him that, that, that 's symbolic of hey we're God sees our sin as leprosy, and if God sees it that way, something that shouldn 't be touched, something that is just be, should be in hiding has no hope for cure jesus doesn 't avoid it. Jesus actually took it and put it upon himself and bore it for us and what good news that was we 're going to see him continue to show facets of why we can believe and trust that he truly is the son of God. And, and, and here's so what I want to say is you're going to see repeatedly rolled out in Luke that God is a God of mercy, of compassion, of unending affection for people that he loves to forgive, that he loves sinners. Now some of you maybe have been taught that the Christian message is anything but that. Uh, that. That's the farthest thing from the truth. And you're going to see particularly here that he loves to forgive sin. He loves to go after your deepest need. It's not just to give you a better moral compass for your life. Okay, Jesus didn't come so you can have some, a few teachings and then feel better about yourself or your se- self-esteem gets a boost or now you've got, you know, uh, a better clarity on life or direction. No, he came to actually make you new. He came to actually fix you. Because uh, if we're all honest in this room, we're broken, right? We're all born broken, we're all born worshiping wrong gods, not the God of the universe. We're all born wanting to worship what's made and not who made it all. That's, that's in us. That is by design. And so Jesus comes and reworks all of that. And all of a sudden we find greater joy in him, the maker, than what's been made. And all of a sudden, life begins to make sense, and we find greater fulfillment and joyous and fullness of life. So let's get into Luke chapter five, where he's going to meet a paralyzed man, and we're going to see Jesus do uh, something profound this morning to him. Verse seventeen says this: On one of these, one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Okay. Just to fill the gaps in a little bit, if you look at Mark's gospel, he gives you a little bit more information. Jesus was up in Galilee doing his ministry, and then he just gets overrun by masses. This happens all the time. He becomes a celebrity preacher. Everybody loves him. Everybody hear, hears about him. Why he's healing lepers? Why he's casting out demons? Let's go see this guy. So the line gets really long for Jesus, and so he has to hide out. He has to get away. He has to make space. He has to get time with his father. We saw that last week. So he actually ends up going back down south to Capernaum, where he's actually most likely at the house of Peter, okay, Um, we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law before, this was a common place he would go, when he went back to Capernaum, that's where he would stay, Um, if you actually look at these houses, when I was in Israel, I got to go to Capernaum a number of years ago, and it was amazing, I mean, we're talking 600 square foot, one room, one floor level house, really small, so Jesus is probably teaching a community group here, okay, so he's, he's just kind of leading this community group of people, we're going to see that it's packed, everyone wants to be in there, everyone wants to see him. And uh, he's likely at at Peter's house. You know, something else to note is crowds 99% of the time are not coming to Jesus for spiritual healing. Okay? You'll you'll seldom see people come to want to repent of sin. Okay? They want the fanfare. They want the circus. Okay? They want Jesus to do all these external things for them. So it's like in John 6. They just want the food. Okay? They just want the miracle. They don't want the the spiritual food of Jesus, but they just want what he can do for them externally. So you're going to see some true followers of Jesus, but it's always a minority. It's always a small percentage, okay? The majority of the time when you see crowds coming out, there's awe, there's astonishment. It's not saving faith, it's human faith. Okay, we're going to get into what what that means this morning. So Jesus is teaching back at this particular point, likely Peter's home. There's people outside just to get a whisper of it. I want you to start to picture this scene because you know when you go to like, those massive events, there's no more tickets, so people like just try to even stand outside the stadium to like just, just get an idea of the action, or you used to see those uh, old drawings where kids would climb trees to see the baseball game over the fence. You know, th- that's what people are doing, okay? They just so desperately want to get even a whisper of the action. Okay, so there's people standing outside the house, probably in the streets. They're all trying to look through the door, look through a window, trying to see what Jesus is saying, trying to see what Jesus is teaching. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees are sitting there. Pharisees are always there. Okay, you're going to see these guys show up everywhere. Now, they're not showing up because they want to be taught. Okay, they're showing up because they want to be a critic. They want to argue. They want to catch Jesus at something. Why? Because Pharisees were the teachers of the day. Right? They taught people what was moral and unmoral. They taught people what was righteous and unrighteous. So Jesus enters the scene, they're going, hey, no, we're the we're the real righteous ones. We're the teachers. And they say also the teachers of the law. That's probably the scribes. Here's how it kind of breaks down. You have scribes. They teach the Pharisees. Pharisees go out and want to teach what all the scribes believe and and persuade them to all these systems of belief and law. And and so you've got the scribes there, the Pharisees there. They want to teach. And and here's the thing just to know very simply about the Pharisees. They had great theology about obedience to the scriptures but terrible practice. So, So it becomes more about what you do than what Jesus does. Right? It becomes more about your righteous life than his perfect life. Okay? And that's how you're going to see it roll out consistently through this gospel. So Jesus is growing in popularity. The scribes and teachers of the law are all there. They all want to get in on the teaching. And here comes Jesus. Divine power. Notice what Luke says. He details the authority Jesus had on a totally different level. He had the authority to heal. He had divine power. Look at verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. This is insane. Okay? So I always say, get in the story. And I I say that over and over and over and over again. So here's what I want you to understand here. Jesus is basically teaching this community group. We don't know how many people fit in the house. We don't know how many people were outside the house, but it was a Big, big, large, large group of people. And here as he's doing it, these men are trying to get their paralyzed friend in to see Jesus because they want him to be healed. They can't get in because it's just so crowded. Okay, they can't even get him through the front door. Amazing that someone wouldn't see that and be like, yeah, go ahead, right? Right? I mean, we're just so wanting our own eyes on what's going on on the axle. We don't even notice the, the hurting near us, right? I and mean, that's a whole other sermon. So, so here these guys are trying so desperately to get to Jesus that they decide to take the steps that go outside up onto the roof and lower him through the top. Now, here, here's, again, what I said about, about first century houses. One floor. There was a stairwell that went outside the house and led you to the roof. And on the roof, there were all these big beams, okay? In between the beams, they put like little twigs and branches. In between that, they put mud. Mud would hold it all together. Then they would put tiles. Not like your bathroom tile, okay? Just like pieces of fabric. So you got to see here with these people, they get up on the roof and start digging through it. Like you think they want to get to Jesus? But This is like major construction. Okay, this is not like I'm just knocking on the window or trying to creep in a crevice. I mean they are literally digging up mud and twigs and bricks and, or, or, or uh, mire and trying to move the tile away so they can lower a full stretcher down into the community group. I mean that's insane. So Jesus is preaching or teaching in this house and I mean mud starts falling on his head. I mean, think about how weird that is. You're teaching and all of a sudden there's, there's a hole that's starting to open up. I mean, you think anyone's paying any attention to Jesus anymore? They're looking at this hole that's, and they have to make it big enough, it says, to lower the man down. That's a big hole, right? That's not a rat or you got a mice issue. you got a human issue, right, coming into your house. This is like massive. So they actually dig, dig, dig. They're, they're doing all this different stuff. And I think just seeing how desperately they want to get to Jesus reveals two things. One, they all had faith to a degree that Jesus could heal. Do you agree? Absolutely. Why are you going to do that? Why are you going to be so desperate to get to this God-man Jesus that you would walk onto a roof and remove tile mud sticks and dismantle a roof to lower your friend down if you didn't believe he could heal? So, and Mark says there's, there's five. There's the paralyzed man and his four friends. Okay? Each one taking a leg of his bed. Or his mat. And as they lower him down, this is what is profound. Jesus says something amazing. Now, I wish there was something recorded here because we don't get him saying anything. You'd think after he lowers him through the roof, there'd be something like, excuse me, Jesus. So I'd interrupt your talk and dismantle the roof and lower a man. Nothing's recorded. All we know is they lower him down. The man's in Jesus' midst. And look at what Jesus says in verse 20. And he saw... Interesting, their faith, plural. But he says to only one person something profound. He says to the man on the stretcher, your sins are forgiven you. Okay. First time Jesus says this in Luke's gospel. Your sins are forgiven you. Huge statement. Why? No other man or person or belief system can say this. Okay? Muhammad can't say it, Buddha can't say it, Brigham Young can't say it, Joseph Smith can't say it. No other system has a substitute for sin where someone can say, I absolve your sin by the doing of another. Every other system says, hey, do this process, work this system up, 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 till you can maybe pay God back or come back different. Okay, What does Jesus say? I do it for you. I pay it for you. I'm the substitute. You get my righteous life, I take your sin. Okay, no other system says that. And Jesus is declaring basically the message of Christianity that is distinct from everything else. He forgives sin. Like man doesn't have to atone for their sin. Man doesn't have to appease God to be made right before God. We have someone else who does it. So Jesus here makes this profound statement saying, I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm the one who has authority to forgive sin. Nothing else does. Nothing intrinsically in you can forgive your sin. You needed something outside of you. Right, We all do, desperately, to make us new. And so here we see Jesus revealing that, that he is going to heal this man not just in his illness but also in his sickness of sin. Now, this is a really interesting statement from Jesus here because we said they all believed that they had faith that Jesus could heal. For the friends, it was not saving faith. It was human faith. What do I mean by human faith? We exercise human faith all the time. Okay? Why do you go to a hospital to get fixed when you need surgery? you got human faith. You, you trust the doctors, right? You believe they can fix you. You believe they can heal you. They're, they're trusted physicians. They have a track record. Hopefully. Hopefully you go to the guy that has a track record. Not the guy who's like, yeah, first knee surgery. Get on the mat. Why don't we, why don't we tear you up, right? I mean, whilst you get wheeled and cut up and, and trust them being knocked out so you don't see anything? You utterly trust them. You do this in a restaurant. Every time you eat, do you go back in the kitchen? right? I'm just checking out how you're making that. I mean, we probably should half the time, right? But but we don't, right? We just, you just exercise human faith. You just trust that that meal's going to come out, right? They didn't spit in it, didn't, you know, do anything else in it, you know? So, right? I mean, you do it, you eat it, you trust the system. It's human faith. Do it all the time. So no one here can say, oh, I don't have you, I, uh, I don't understand what they're, yeah, you do. You do it all the time. You trust people you don't know from Adam, you, you blindly have faith, right? Here, here's what we know. Okay, this four men had human faith. Clearly this paralyzed man is something else. He had saving faith. We know, what, that you have to repent of sin, right? I mean, John the Baptist declared this, that salvation is found when you repent and turn from your sin. So that has to happen, not just human faith, not just believing Jesus can heal you from your paralyzation. And so there's something more with this paralyzed man than just human faith. And he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. He sees in this man spiritual faith. I mean, this is awesome. John 2 says what? Jesus never had to be told what was in the heart of man because he always saw what was in the heart of man. So he sees the repentance and the belief in this man that he's not just... Amen. He's not just a teacher who's here to fix my paralyzation. This man knows whose eyes he's laying them on. He knows this is the God-man Jesus. He knows that this Jesus offers remedy for a sickness much more serious than paralyzation. He knows he needs, he needs to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus, seeing it because he's fully God, having all discernment, all knowledge of all things, of every human heart that exists on the planet, he sees in this man, hey, this guy's heart is repentant. This guy knows that only I can forgive sin. And so seeing that, Jesus says in an instant, I forgive your sin. Amazing. The other four guys, human faith. We just want to see our buddy healed physically. It's a great thing. It doesn't go all the way, though. It's not saving faith. It's just... Human faith. Jesus knew what this guy really wanted. So Jesus is in a moment, cures this man of all his sin. And this is just what the scribes were looking for. Just what the Pharisees wanted. It's what they always want. To catch Jesus in something. To see him saying something a little bit outside the box. He's probably a blasphemer. They know his claim to be God. So look at what they say in verse 21. Right? They begin to do what they do best argue and criticize. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, again, great theology, right? I mean, Who can forgive sin but God alone? And what's fascinating here is they weren't saying it, they were thinking it. Okay, you read this in every other gospel account of this story. So they didn't say it out loud. So again, Jesus affirming his omniscience perceives what they're saying. Knows that they're thinking in their head, okay, well, hold on a second. Okay, only God can make a claim that he forgives sin. So either this guy is God or he's just a blasphemer. So they conclude he can't be God, he must be a blasphemer. Now notice first, I, I was seeing this, the religious leaders, rather than rejoice continually, even after Jesus heals him, they criticize. They're numb ...to the illness of this man or the healing of this man. And this is what religiosity does to you. It makes you super arrogant and not compassionate at all. It's what it does, right? So the more you get boosted about you and you love what you do... ...and how righteous you are and the things that you do and the laws that you keep... ...you become very, very unaware of hurting sinners. You become very numb to those who are in desperate need of some compassion... ...of some kindness, of some mercy... And, and this, this, this just symbolizes these people, engrossed in just being right. So they love to argue, love to be judgmental, love to cast the stone. You'll see this consistently in the Gospels, right? And so here we see this happening here. <laughs> they don't even jump up to help the paralyzed man when he's lowered. All they care about is Jesus' exegesis of Hebrew. <laughs> I don't really know if that's Right? He must be a blasphemer. What did he gonna do you say he's going to forgive sin? Do you see how entrenched they are in their system? And instead of being elated over the man's healing, they're going to have the opposite response. And this is what's amazing. Compare it last week. Leper just cries out for mercy. Like, like that's the response. Here, critical, judgmental, poking the finger. And let me just say this. Everyone in this room is religious. Okay, some of are going, well, I'm just so glad I'm not religious then. Well, you worship something. I don't know what your functional belief system is, okay? But whatever your belief system is, is a religion you have that you have to keep. It can be with lifestyle. It can be with ideology. It can be with theory. But, but that's your religion. Right? I mean Martin Luther, I think it was, who said that religion is the heart of every person. So that, that's so true. So whatever your functional God is, that's what you will worship. Okay, so everyone in here is religious to a degree. And what I love is Jesus comes, and Jesus totally flips the entire bent of the religious system on its head and says, I atone for sin, I make right, no one else does it, I'm the perfect system, I'm the one who fulfills the law, I'm the one who does all things, and Jesus comes and lives the righteous life for you, dies the death for you, rises again for you, validates it all, gives you himself for you to wear, for you to clothe yourself in, for you to hide behind... I mean, that, that's the system that we want, right? Not, not keeping lists of rules, but trusting in the one who did for you, the one who made all things. And this is incredible that we see in Jesus living this out, teaching this, that he's the one to be worshiped, that we can't possibly do anything to make right in this world what went wrong. And look at what Jesus says in verse 22 as he perceives their thoughts, as he knows what they're thinking about him being a blasphemer, he reads their minds. That's awesome. I've always wanted that superpower any power I could have, right? It says this, verse 22, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, saying, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? Now, at first glance, you might say, Well, it's easier to say, Get off your mat and walk. That's what I thought at first glance reading it. But, but, but really diving down into this, Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is, What's easier to say with evidence? Is it much easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven? I mean, how do you prove that? Right? I mean, how do you visibly prove that? There's no evidence. I mean, if I say to you, hey, your sins are forgiven, I mean, okay, awesome. I mean, there's there's no evidence internally you can do that. However, if I say to a paralyzed man, hey, get off your mat, walk, you're healed, and he does, that's much more difficult to say. Why? Because there's evidence of proof now. It validates my claim. And here's the thing. If Jesus says to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, he gets up and walks and is healed and restored. Then it validates that he is God, which validates when he said to him, your sins are forgiven. His sins were actually forgiven. So so Jesus is just having fun with them. As he always does. I, I tell you my conversion story when I spent three months just reading the whole Bible in college. When I had my crisis of faith moment. I just reading the life of jesus transformed me just seeing what he said like you can't make it up like you can't dialogue like jesus you can't say things like jesus his his wit his his transparency his ability with precision to dialogue and say the things that only a god could say and so he says here knowing exactly what they're thinking he discerns them and he wants to validate that he's not a blasphemer that he is god which is why he will prove that In verse 24, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why is he doing it? He wants people to know that when he said to that man, your sins are forgiven, they were forgiven. You don't have to speculate. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Some of you have been wrongly taught that Jesus never said he was God. Okay? That's error. Jesus said he was God a number of times, and he says it even here by not explicitly saying it, but by what he does. This is him affirming that he's God. This is him saying he's God. I mean, read the text. So you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Son of Man. Daniel, right? The the messianic promise. That he is the God-man Jesus. He's validating that he is who he said he was. And Jesus shows in a number of different ways, this being one of them, that he is God. And this man got the full package. He gets literally healing and forgiveness of sin. And and understand, this is what happens when you become a Christian. This is why I continuously say, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ, you are not just a tweaked version of your old self. So you're not just like kind of made new. He says you're a new creation. You are totally made new. So you get the whole package. You get atonement. You get righteousness. You get forgiveness. You get cleansing. You get expiation. You get it all. Like Everything the cross of Christ gives you, you get. You get the full package deal. You get a new mind. You get a new heart. You get to grow in godliness. You get to have new desires. You get everything. So that's why there shouldn't really be confusion if you're a Christian or not. Like, I don't really know if I love God. Well, okay. The new created person loves God. Doesn't mean you don't struggle in affection for Him or, or, or desire. Or, but man, at the end of the day, man, there, there is something in you that wants to please Him. I mean, there's something in the bottom of your soul that says, this isn't right, I want to turn from that and walk in righteousness. If that's nowhere to be found in you, you might want to reconsider your regeneration. Because this is a picture of someone who's made new. Jesus makes us fully new. That's why we said last week, when we saw that he cleanses us. Right? He doesn't just forgive sin, he has to cleanse and wipe away. We saw when the leper comes, how they had to go back to the priest, and they had the two birds, and one was to be killed right there, one was to be sent away, symbolizing he forgives the sin and pays the debt, and the other one goes away, showing that your sins are Sent far, far away. He cleanses. He expiates. He removes. He does so much in the cross of Christ. We don't even have time to unpack. That was given to you when you leaned into the cross. When you repented of sin. Amazing. And look at the reaction of the crowd. (laughs) And I want us to see a few things right here because this is really important. And amazement seized all of them. I'd say so. Right? There was a paralyzed man here this morning. And I said, hey, get up and walk. He got up and walked. You'd be amazed. <laughs> you'd be talking about that the rest of the year. Right? Amazement seized them all. They glorified God. And were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. Okay, I want to point out a few things here. Um, one is historically for a man to receive forgiveness of God, they had to work the system. So there had to be blood, there had to be sacrifice, there had to be penance, there had to be repayment, right? All Old Testament, right? Well, well what happened with this man to get forgiveness of sin? He was just lowered through a roof. He was just set in front of Jesus. Did he have time for blood sacrifice and penance? and att- What happened? Jesus just forgave him. What are you seeing here? You're seeing a shift in redemptive history. Right here in Jesus, forgiving this man of his sins. He's showing that I am the one with full authority who will fully fulfill the entire system. That all of those things were but shadows of pointing to the reality, the substance, which is Jesus Christ. I just forgive sin. My blood that's going to be shed is going to forgive your sin. My body that's going to be broken is going to be broken for you in your place. I mean, I'm going to peace for it all. You're going to get my righteousness. I'm going to take on all your sin. I mean, it's amazing what we're seeing here. This, this shift in history that through historical understanding of the Jewish mind and Israel people that no one gets lowered on the floor and just gets forgiveness. Nobody. Until the one who was promised comes and validates that, yeah, I'm here. And this is how it's going to be. And it's pretty sweet, by the way. <laughs> that, that That's what we do. We, we just free grace. <laughs> free mercy? What? That God would just give grace, extend forgiveness... ...because he can in the person of work of Jesus? Amazing that we see this shift beginning to happen. And here's the other thing that's important to understand. Luke says that they were filled with awe. I've heard people all the time teach us and say... How all these people are getting saved. Because they're astonished and they're just in awe. And that word awe is actually the word for, the, the Greek word for phobia, like you have a fear. So, so what this actually includes, this word if you were to really strain it out, is astonishment, fear, confusion, awe. Not really understanding what's happening here. It's a combination of panic. This is not repentance and faith. These people are not repenting of sin. They're just confused and in awe by what they're seeing and here is what is amazing. If if you look at Matthew's account, I don't have it on the screen, here's what Matthew says in his gospel about the same story. He says, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, sounds good so far, who had given such authority to men. Hold on a second. How how can you attribute Jesus, who just cast out demons, healed leprosy, raised a paralyzed man from the dead? How can you say he's just a man? They're saying, "Wow, God gave such authority to a man." Like, do do you understand what he's saying there? They're not saying he's God. They're saying he's just a man who God somehow decided to give authority to. Okay, so how can you go through witnessing what Jesus is doing, seeing him raise dead men and heal blind men and cast out demons and cure leprosy and rise people from paralyzation? How can you go and say, hey, man, wow, he's he's just a really strong, amazing man that's got superpowers? I'll tell you how. Spiritual blindness. There are some of you that have every reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And you're just spiritually blind. You refuse to believe it. He was just a good teacher. He was just some good guy that lived and taught some things. And, and if you really, with enough intellectual honesty, studied the scriptures and, and looked at who he was and what he said and, and what he reveals, you'd see that he really is God, that he really is the God that takes on the sin of the world and gives righteousness and forgives And offers mercy and kindness. And yet in your spiritual blindness and unbelief, you refuse to trust him. This is very common. I mean, I I say a lot. Usually it's just you wanting to find something else. Your heart is just really wanting something else. I mean, I remember years ago. There was a young student, we did high school ministry, my wife and I. And we were at a, at a retreat, I was speaking at a retreat, and we came to this guy and he said to me, he was a junior in high school, and I saw him reading The Da Vinci Code. <clears throat> I said, wow, interesting book you're reading. He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, uh, so what are your thoughts? He goes, man, I, after reading this book, man, I, I'm totally convinced now that Jesus wasn't God, and the scriptures aren't true. I'm like, Okay, wow, interesting. So you're going to go off this one guy's opinion of Jesus and believe he's not God and yeah yeah I'm totally convinced after reading the Da Vinci Code I said okay great I said so so what would it take to convince you that Jesus is who he said he was or is it really that you just don't have ears to hear Jesus says that a lot he was ears to hear let him hear I mean, so if I came back to you and showed you just rolled out for you all the reasons you can trust canonicity and inerrancy of the scriptures, and just showed you irrefutable evidence that he is that the Bible itself is accurate, would you really then trust Jesus? Or would you then jump on something else? I don't know the Gospel of Judas. It says this about Jesus. Okay, and then okay, then I showed you why all of those books are, are not inspired by God, how they don't line up, how stuff historically has been put together for the, for the alignment of the faith, how Jesus worked, eyewitness testimony, and then I laid all that out for you. Would you really then believe in Jesus or then? Well, I don't know. It's all the hypocrites in the church, you know? Like everyone, everybody's just hypocrites. Okay, so I got rid, rid of all the hypocrites in the church. It was just you on Sunday. Okay, so so you roll in here. Some of you are really late on getting that. So here it is. So I get rid of all the hypocrites, and you just show up by yourself on Sunday. Are you then going to trust Jesus? Are you then really going to believe he is who he said he was, or are you just going to then jump on something else and jump on something else? And some of you guys are just desperately looking for something else in your hard heart. And I'm telling you, you're not going to find the answer unless you go to what's true. And and I say all the time, some of you guys spend 90% of your energy and effort looking for things that, that teach that this isn't true instead of having some intellectual honesty and diving into, okay, so why don't you also use the same tenacity and energy in seeing if it's right? Do your homework. I mean, only one can hold weight, right? Only one can bear itself and prove itself. And the beauty of Jesus is he doesn't need help. I mean, when God reveals himself to you, you can't help but repent of your sin. You can't help but worship. He's not a weak God. He, isn't, he doesn't conjure people and try to force you. He just reveals himself. And you go, glory. You're good. You're saving. You're merciful. I see my sin. I'm exposed. I'm naked like in the garden. I need, I need covering. I need ransoming. I need atonement. I need a righteous one. I know I'm not righteous. And God graciously comes and gives it to you. That's why Jesus did these miracles. He never did these miracles because he had to make a bigger scene or get following. He wanted to validate who he was. So here he validates. He forgives sin alone by validating he was God through the supernatural work of this miracle. And let me just say, Jesus is in the business of forgiving sins. He's been doing it since he stepped foot on this planet. Since he ascended into heaven and gifted his Holy Spirit. Which is why we're all about Jesus, why he's the object of worship, why he's the object of praise, why he's the, 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 the centerpiece of all that we do, why he's the hero of the story. He offers forgiveness of sin. He offers remedy for your deepest need, and you can have it this morning. If you repent of your sin and trust him, he'll give it to you. It's his promise. It's what he wants to do. If you come in here and you're, you're weary, you're, you're very keenly aware of your need of grace, good news. We're all keenly aware of our need and we're all in desperate need of of rescuing and redemption and Jesus offers it. Trust him, he he wants to forgive sin. Let's pray and ask him to do that. God, thank you that you're someone who says to our spiritually paralyzed life of sin, (laughs) when we are on the mat, unable to walk in newness of life, unable to get up, you say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Get off your bed and walk in newness of life. God, thank you that you have the authority and the power to do that. God, thank you for so many of us in this room. You've made us new. That we were spiritually paralyzed, dead in our sin, unable to walk, unable to see things right, unable to understand the universe, unable to enjoy you. And yet in kindness and mercy, out of nothing that we did. We simply were lowered to the foot of your cross. And you said, forgiven. That in trusting in your death, resurrection, and payment alone. In your life that was lived for us. In your righteousness that is given to us. In the sin that you took on for us. In the wrath that you appeased on our behalf. That was right towards us in our sin. You said, walk in newness of life. God, I pray for those in this room who have not been made new, who are spiritually crippled by sin, that you would rescue them from their deepest illness, that they would be very aware that, God, the most desperate thing they need is not more money in their account. It's not for their marriage to be more healthy. It's not for their kids to get more straightened up. It's not for their house to be in order. It's not for their job to increase. It's not for the, all their enemies to be repaid. God, our need is the sin that plagues our hearts. God, we need it removed. We need it cleansed. We need it forgiven. We need, it, we need to be made new for your glory and worship. God, would you be kind to some this morning? Would you woo them to yourself? Would you reveal who you are to them? Would you unveil eyes and open ears to see the goodness of Jesus? And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, which we love to remember this body that was broken, this blood that was shed to give forgiveness of sin, that we would celebrate it, that we would enjoy it, that we would think about it. It's for the fame of your name we pray. Amen.